Hi there, this is Watchin, and you are now listening to the I Choose the Ladder podcast, a podcast for Black women on the corporate climb. This episode is brought to you by The Review Planner. For many of us, performance review season is about to begin. For many of us, it's also a challenge to remember all of the things that we've done during the year. So what happens is our performance reviews become a one-way conversation where our managers are telling us what they think we did during the year And without proof of our performance, it becomes incredibly hard for us to advocate for that raise, promotion, or new position that we know we deserve. So I created the review planner because I always wanted a tool like this, a systematic way to track all of our career accomplishments that are specifically tied to the feedback and growth areas that our managers are measuring our success by. The review planner helps you create a schedule for your career growth and it makes it easy to focus on the goals that you have throughout the year. With email templates, monthly checklists, built-in accountability and reminders, the planner keeps you on track to accomplish your goals and ensures you are spending your time on the things that actually move your career forward. I designed the review planner to help you focus on your career and prepare for your annual review so you can confidently speak up for yourself and earn what you deserve. To learn more about the Review Planner, head to thereviewplanner.com. Again, that's thereviewplanner.com and pre-order yours today. In this episode, you meet Amelia Hardy. Amelia is the Vice President of Strategic Initiatives for Inclusion and Diversity at Best Buy. She joined the company in 2014 and has held various roles, including Category Marketing Director for Home, Theater, and Digital Imaging, and Director of Brand Marketing for Holiday and Seasonal Campaigns. Most recently, she was the Senior Director of Health Enterprise Relationship Management. She has had over 20 years of strategic leadership roles at Fortune 100 companies. Her career experiences include marketing, strategy, brand management, business development, product commercialization, and P&L management. Amelia is significantly involved within the community. Currently, she serves as the champion for the Black Employee Resource Group and serves on multiple national and community boards, including the Boys and Girls Club of the Twin Cities. Outside of work, Amelia resides in Woodbury, Minnesota, and enjoys spending time with her husband and their four kids, ranging in ages from three years old to 15 years old. She spends time at dance competition, soccer and basketball games, and at the local playgrounds. If you had the opportunity to attend the climb, then you know that Amelia is very transparent with her career journey and what it took and what it currently takes to sit in the seat that she sits in um, as a black woman in senior leadership in the corporate space because she is the champion for the black employer resource group at best buy i thought it would be um, beneficial to have her give perspective on how we can support black employees within the workplace and also for the women the black women who listen to the podcast to have you all think strategically around how you position yourselves for success within your organizations so as always Grab your I Choose the Ladder notebook, your favorite beverage, and a pen, and get ready to get to work. Amelia, thank you so much for deciding to be on the podcast today. Thank you for having me watching. Um, So you were clearly a hit at the summit because you're back, because everybody was like, we need more of Amelia. So welcome, welcome. Um, So my first uh, question, because we didn't really get to delve deeper into this um, when we were at the climb, is 
How did you even know that corporate was like a thing you could pursue? Were your parents in corporate? Did you have somebody say, hey, this is a route that you should travel down? I was a part of a program called Inroads, and that is an organization that develops and places talented minority youth in business and industry. And I started that just because some of my friends were doing it in high school. And every Saturday, we would sit in seminars and people would come in, people that look like me um, and you, and would say, this has been my career trajectory in corporate America, and here's where I work. And they would talk about the different um, companies around where I grew up in Kansas City. And that is where I first understood that there is this thing called corporate America. People who look like me have successful careers or can be successful in corporate America. And they started to expose me to what the possibilities are. And inroads, um, it was a great opportunity for me to learn from people who were very um, empathetic and could relate to some of the things that I would face in corporate America and help prepare me for what that would be. Mm. And we'll talk a little bit about the things that we face in corporate America during the podcast. But So thinking back to your first job, do you remember how you got that first corporate job? The first corporate job? Well, in in Rhodes, we had to interview and I started um, at a company that we all know called Sprint in Kansas City. And the hiring manager just said, I see a lot of you and me, and I want to coach you and help you um, to navigate through corporate America. So I started in finance and marketing at um, Sprint's. Out of business school, I met a gentleman at 3M at a National Black Career Fair in Anaheim, California. And he just explained to me that 3M was a place where they were looking for diversity and he wanted to actually coach and cover me. And he wasn't a gentleman of color, but he was someone who understood the type of cover, psychological cover and safety that I would need. And he just said, coming out of business school, this being your first job, you're going to need someone at a certain level who's going to be able to provide that for you, to provide that mentorship, to provide that sponsorship. And I thought about that because he talked about that in a way that none of the other companies that I was interviewing for did. They didn't even mention it. And the fact that he put that in my mind, at first I was scared because I was like, why do I need so much cover? Why is he talking about this mentorship, sponsorship? Little did I know, right? Um, Because even in an internship, you don't get the full brunt of it as you do when you're a full-time employee. But he was on to something and I understood that. And I understood that he had taken down um, the curtain for me as a white male and said, I understand what, to a certain extent, he couldn't walk in my shoes, right? And he was like, I can see what you might need in order to succeed. And I'm willing to do my part to help you succeed. Mm-hmm. So let's go back really quickly. So you mentioned that this 3M opportunity happened out of business school. Where were you in your career when you decided to go to business school and what informed that decision? Interestingly enough, I went straight through from Xavier, University of Louisiana, HBCU I attended in New Orleans to Tulane for business school. And the reason why I was able to do that is because I had a lot of internship experience from En-ROADS and also by interning at PepsiCo Quaker Oats. Mm -hmm. So I decided to go straight through because Xavier and Tulane had an agreement Mm -hmm. where you could start taking MBA classes your junior year in college if you had enough credits. I took the GMAT and took a chance and they said, your internship experience with Sprint and your experience with En-ROADS and all these other companies 
um, has given you what you need to be successful in business school. And that's what I did. Some people counseled against it. Right now, I think they counsel that you have um, some in work, you know, in office, actual uh, full-time experience, but they felt at the time that because of what I was able to articulate about my internship experience and my training from high school, that it would be something I could do and be successful in. So that's why I decided to go straight through. And for everyone who has, is in business school, since contemplating business school, you know that preparing for the GMAT is a whole <laughs> job on its own. So the fact that you did that while in school, I take my hat off to you because if I never see the, the words, the word G-Bat G-Bat ever again yeah. in my life, I will not do <laughs> that at all. Hey, I um, understand. So at that point, because you had the support of inroads, I'm kind of similar in that I had the support of Posse. So the mm-hmm. concept of mentorship like was introduced, maybe not formally, but it was introduced or brought into my life at a really young age. And it's allowed me to have a lot of mentors and sponsorship. But at that point, what did you believe the role of your mentor or sponsor to be as it pertained to your career? I thought that uh, they would give me advice, that they would coach me, that they would give me good feedback. I, I don't think I really understood when I first started out the difference between a mentor and a sponsor and what I would need to take a mentor to a sponsor and then that I would need sponsors to pull me the rest of the way. I think mentors can get you to a certain point, but I think as you need to break the glass ceiling, the concrete ceiling, the black ceiling, whatever ceiling you wanna call it, um, that you need those sponsors and those key positions that are able to pull you up and help you achieve that. And how do you, how have you engaged with mentors and sponsors as you've gotten more senior in your career? I know that for um, a lot of, we've done so many mentorship talks and every time we do one, there are tons of people there because I think that it is something that people pay a lot of attention to, but the sponsorship piece of it, I think, which in my opinion is the most important in terms of like career mobility. We don't really talk about it as much because I think that the process is so it's not really a process and mm-hmm. the way that it has there's no formality around it. And so how do you think about engaging and when you leverage them for different things? Right. So mentors, there are formal mentors that I have that are experts in the areas that I need information in. There are some mentors that I have because they have experiences that I need to tap into. So I've used mentors for a lot of advice and coaching based on their subject matter expertise or their experience or that I've seen them move up or move around in corporate America or even outside of corporate America. I think, you know, I have a lot of doctors and attorneys where I see parallel paths to what they've gone through or what they've learned that is very helpful to me. For sponsors, I think what I look for are mentors that I can relate to, that are empathetic, that uh, give me feedback and a coaching out of care and concern that I can be transparent with and I know um, have an interest in seeing me advance in my career. It's not that mentors don't, but I also think sponsors have to be in a position to move you along and they have to be willing to use their political capital to do that. And so I, I think all of, I haven't gone to someone and said, will you be my sponsor? Because I think it's a cultivated relationship. And usually those people start as mentors. You um, 
gain that rapport with them. They go on the journey with you. They see you work. They get feedback from other people about you. And then they say, I'm committed to helping you grow. And I'm in a position to do that. And then that's where I think the, the, the mentorship turns into a different type of relationship. And that's a sponsor. A lot of people will tell me, well, I have a sponsor and I went to them and I told them I was interviewing for a job. And, you know, but I still didn't get the job. What happened is there's a couple things that could have happened. You know, you could maybe you needed better feedback from that sponsor. But sometimes I say, well, sponsors really get they are action. They do actions for you. They help pull you up or they get you stretch assignments or they get you to the next level or they give you really transparent feedback about why they cannot do that for you in that moment. And so I just ask people to question whether someone really is a sponsor. Are they really giving you that constructive feedback? Or are they doing things to help get you to the next level? Or are they just giving you advice? I think that you have to see some actions to call somebody a sponsor. Yeah. And I also think like part of that, a very real part of that conversation that we need to have is your sponsor can open the door. It's up to you to like take advantage or capitalize on the room when you get in there. So I think a lot of times when people say things like, well, I interviewed for this, my sponsor knew that I was interested and I didn't get the role. Well, it's like, yeah, your sponsor got you in that room, right? And there are different factors that are going to go into deciding on if you are the person for um, for that role, but your sponsor's responsibility is to make sure that your name is mentioned in the conversation or that you are in the consideration set. Everything after that is pretty much it's on you. Yes, I agree. So and I think also your sponsor should be able to give you good feedback if you did not get the role right. You should be mm -hmm. able to get some pretty constructive feedback so that they can work with you and you can work with your mentors and on your career development plan and your coach. So the next time when they open that door for you, that you do land the position or you are more ready than you were at that time. So I totally agree with that watching. So when you're thinking now, right, because you're in senior leadership, I'm sure, and you are one of the few Black women there are not a lot of y'all in these high leadership roles within these large organizations. So I'm pretty sure that people want you to mentor and sponsor them all the time. How do you know, or what do you consider before taking on a new mentee? Or if you decide that if you are going to leverage your uh, political capital on behalf of someone else? A lot of watching and getting to know somebody. I think it's a lot of, do people's um, do what they say they're going to do? Do, the, do they deliver? Do they have a can-do attitude instead of a won't-do attitude? So I think I want to see some actions of what are you doing with, that's within your control? Are you showing up and showing out every day? Are you, you know, are you, when you make mistakes, are you owning up to them? How are you working? Not only what are you doing and delivering results, but how are you delivering those? And are you coachable? Do you take feedback? Because if you don't take feedback, then there's not much I can do. And I can't put my political capital out there if I give you feedback. And then that's not something that you're willing to listen to. So I think all of those things, if that happens and we have a pretty good rapport um, and trust, I think that is where I start to say, okay, this person I can mentor and give advice to. I'll, I'll give advice. Uh, people know I'm highly accessible in that regard. I'll give advice and share what I know in my journey and my stories with almost any anyone, but that sponsorship piece is really understanding, is that person ready? Are they doing what they need to do? Is their mind in the right place? Are they coachable? Um, and do they have a really good can-do attitude? And then that is what I'm willing to put my political capital out there. Mm. Um, so we talked very briefly about the the difference between how much of the um, between being an intern and being like a full-time employee, how much you get to see behind the curtain as it pertains mm -hmm. to 
a black person, a black woman in that space. What do you think is like, was the most surprising thing for you um, going from intern to uh, full-time employee being black in large corporate organizations? I'd say that there's this thing, I think around black women, I call it the three P's. So there's perception, personality, and performance. And I felt that uh, as a black woman, my the perception of my personality would often affect the perception of my performance. And so when I got feedback, it would be things like, um, she said that assertively, or uh, she's, she's scary when her point of view is different or whatnot. And it wasn't necessarily specifics about my performance. So I'd asked my manager, what is it, what is really um, what we are focused on here? Is it my personality? Because uh, personality is probably not going to change. You can coach to minimize certain things in your personality that might uh, be countercultural to that organization or um, things that you might need to work on to be a good leader. But the perception of those things that have microaggressions and biases and everything um, tied to it, that needs to be addressed by the, the company, its leadership, the culture. And I did not realize how deep that goes in some instances, that perception of who I am, not based on necessarily what I do or what I'm trying to portray, but all the other things that I don't have control over and how much that would impact my performance and um, my promotability, if you will. Mm -hmm. So something that you said um, early on in your statement is that you asked a question around like what it is that we're trying to like measure here. A lot of times I think because black women have been conditioned to be grateful just to be in the room that we often don't use our voices, right? So when you think about advocating for yourself with all of the stereotypes, right? Like, I don't wanna be seen as an angry black woman or you may, or you may not care about it or I don't wanna be seen as aggressive or I don't, like how do you find the, the space where you can advocate for yourself so that you can get the things that you've earned, whether that's a promotion because your work has been excellent or a raise because of whatever the reason, like how, do, how have you gotten to a place where you are, able to set those boundaries and advocate for yourself? I think there are a couple of things. I think it's surrounding yourself by a good network and those people who will protect you and speak on your behalf in the room when you're not there. So that's one. And I think two, it's formulating those relationships that people get to know me for who I am. And I think that once they get to know me and they care about me as an individual, as a human being, then the perception, you know, the they see me in a different light. Mm -hmm. And I think it's not always fair. And I don't know what fair is to say that I, we have to spend that amount of time building rapport and relationships with people so that they see us who we really as who we really are and are accepting of that. But I have felt that I've had to do a lot of that to really, um, you know, build those relationships so that people see me for who I am. And then I've also had to be very transparent and say, hey, preface it, I'm very direct. So if you find that I'm being direct and you think that, um, you know, that's a problem or you, or you feel like I'm being negative or whatever, just stop me and say, hey, I think you're saying this. Is that what you're saying? So I've had to go into rooms and de-escalate a lot even before I get started because I know what the perceptions are going to be. If I'm transparent, if I'm direct, if I'm expressing a, um, 
a point of view that is not status quo. I know that sometimes they're not going to hear what that is. They're going to perceive it differently because of who I am. Uh, and so I will go in a room and say, hey, I'm going to share some things that might be different and that's okay. Be, feel free, but this is an open dialogue. So to really disarm uh, people uh, is what I focus on. And at first I said, why do I have to do that? But the reality is that I have to do that until people understand my work and my value and who I am and what I deliver. Do you feel that your non-white counterparts, uh, your non-black counterparts feel that same level of responsibility? Like that they- I, Probably not. I mean, I don't think they, they do. I can't, I mean, I'm not walking in their shoes, but I don't see them explaining um, why they feel a certain way, why they're communicating a certain way, why they might show up or be perceived to show up in a certain way. I do think that, um, you know, I find if I do that initially, I don't have to do that always, but I do feel in new situations with new people, especially if the culture is a little hesitant to accept different types of leaders that I have to do it. But I think the burden as we, we feel as black women in what we carry and what we have to do definitely is probably not the same as others. And do you think, cause this is something that I find very fascinating. Um, do you think that your counterparts understand like the mental gymnastics that you go through before you like enter a space or like the, the level of preparation that's required in order to like show up and just do your job? I don't think so. I've often said like, I've done a lot even before I get here. Um, and that's even just, you know, personal and professional, just walking, you know, doing things, walking into a store um, as a black woman with with uh, natural hair or braids, people treat me differently than my counterpart. So I got to deal with that even before I get to work, right? And and the care and concern I have for my family, for my kids, is, is probably a level uh, higher under certain circumstances in these times than you know some of my coworkers have to feel. So I don't know if they can relate to that. Hopefully, they try to empathize with me. Are, or sympathize in the least, but I don't really think they understand the emotional toll um, and the trauma that we feel trying to, like I said, explain who I am and why who I am is okay. Hmm. So I don't, I don't see other people having to do that. And hopefully, you know, there's a day when I don't have to do that when you don't have to do that when my daughters don't have to do that when my sons don't have to do that but for today I know that uh, I do have to do a little bit of priming uh, the relationships building the relationships making sure that I'm disarming anyone who might have certain perceptions of who I am hmm. and so let's talk briefly about hair right so I have braids you have braids you have a crown currently yes. um, how have you one you think that corporate has become more accepting of people, all people showing up as their authentic selves at work. Um, and for you, like, how do you think about hair, right? You're in senior leadership. You have a lot of eyes on you. A lot of what you do is interfacing with other senior level executives within your company. How do you think about how you show up or do you give much thought to that? So I'll tell you, my natural hair journey started. I have two daughters and when they were young, I would put their hair in braids, but I was still wearing my hair straight. I was still relaxing my hair. And even at a young age, I think my daughter was three or four and she said, well, I want my hair to look like yours. So why do I have to wear braids or wear my hair like this when your hair is straight? And I said, hmm, that's a good point. And at the time there weren't that many black 
women at my company, first of all, and they definitely were not wearing their hair natural. But I said for me, because I want my daughters to be okay with their hair and how beautiful it is being in their own skin. Mm-hmm. I went natural and it was countercultural and I was nervous about it. And I remember even telling my husband, like, this is going to be um, the beginning of the end, but this is something that I very much so believe for my own daughters. Like I have to, like I said, the say do, like I have to do what I say. Mm-hmm. So I went natural and I was very nervous about it, but after I did it, then other women would come to me and say, now that you've done it, I'm going to do it. Like I see that you are wearing it with confidence. And, um, and so I'm going to do it. So I did it and someone else got the courage to do it. And then other people got the courage to do it. Um, but I was ready at that point to face whatever the repercussions were on my job. And did people see me differently? Probably some did. Um, maybe others, most people commented on it either way, right? I mean, they were aware that it was something different in the time where it wasn't popular, but it was something that I wanted to do for myself, for my family, for my girls, to be a role model for them and to be comfortable in my own skin. Like it's it's beautiful. And um, I wish I would have done it sooner. So we, we are talking about like being a black woman in leadership. We know that 2020 has been a year like no other, right? Mm -hmm. And as a leader, you are managing teams of very diverse people. Um, You have Black people on your team, you have Black women within your company. How are you thinking about um, empathy during this time as it pertains to like your staff and knowing that they're dealing with all of these things in the world? I've been really concerned about the mental health of um, BIPOC during this time. Uh, racial trauma and COVID and health issues and concerns. So we really have done a lot with working with our employee assistants and employee relations teams to make sure that we have people of color that can provide counseling services for people. And I've encouraged that. That's sometimes a stigma, especially in Black communities, to get help that you need. But that's something that I've really pushed on and, and had made it easier for people to do that. Um, in privacy if they choose to, to, but to get the help and support that they need. And that's something that I've encouraged my team to take time for self-care and to really be introspective about how you're doing. Sometimes we're so busy that we look up and we, we realize that I'm not good. I'm not doing well. I haven't taken the time to assess where I'm at. And that's one thing I'm encouraging my team to do. Take the time to really figure out where you're at and what resources that you need and what support that you need. Mm. Um, so we're gonna transition a little bit. Uh, so you obviously did not start your career in the current seat that you sit in. Mm-hmm. Um, so thinking back over your journey, has there ever been a time where you maybe felt stuck in a role or stuck, you felt like you were in a position for too long, you were ready to move on? And what did you do to get unstuck? There was a role that I was in for um, a while and I felt that I was getting stuck. Uh, What I did was I admitted, um, which is a hard thing to do, that this role was no longer a good fit. And that's, that's hard and not necessarily because I couldn't do the role, but I felt that um, it was time to do something else in order to let someone else come in the role and add new perspective to it and help me to move on to gain new skills and add my perspective to another part of the company and to um, 
you know, sometimes you just need to expand or reset or have a fresh start. And um, so I began to communicate that uh, a little bit of vulnerability there and say, like, I'm willing to do stretch assignments. I'm willing to take on a project. I'm willing to do whatever it is to see, you know, what the next best step for me is to gain a certain, you know, set of skills that I think I need in order to continue to move up. And so I think I had to become comfortable with myself um, being vulnerable, saying, okay, like, yes, now is the time. And then two to say, like, not every career move is up. Sometimes it's um, lateral. Some people are okay going back a little to go forward. I was a little hesitant to do that as a Black woman. I didn't want to lose any footing, <laughs> any footing that I had gained. Um, but I was willing to, to stay at the same level and gain more skills. And I, I still am very much willing to do that, to move across in order to learn different things, to get different perspectives, to add and infuse what I know and my strengths into different areas of the company and business. But it, it is hard when you come to that moment to, um, to be, I think for me, it was hard to be real with myself and say like, what do I need to do now for me to make sure I remain energized, I keep learning and I keep contributing to the company. So if you are, cause this is something that I think is an interesting self-awareness exercise um, and I'm interested to get your perspective on it. So if you are bored, because that's what we hear all the time, people say like, I'm bored in the role. How do you know if it's the role or if it's you, right? Like, how do you know if you've reached a point where like, there's nothing else for you to learn in that role versus you just don't want to learn anything else in that role? Now, I don't even know if it makes a difference, yeah. but like, how do you know if it's you or the position? I think also, I mean, you ask for feedback, right? Like, how are you performing in the role? If you're knocking it out the park and you've been doing that for a while, then I guess you could say, you know, I've done what I need to do to succeed in this role and I need to move on. But if you're not, or you're getting feedback uh, that is, is not as favorable and it's consistent, then I think you need to start asking yourself, what is it um, that's keeping me from doing what I need to do in the role. To your point, am I bored because I'm not learning? Am I bored because this is not a good fit anymore? But I think you have to be seek feedback. And I think you have to also say, what are the next set of skills that I need to reach my final goal? And am I still getting that here? Mm. Um, one of the things that I, I think has been an area of concern, at least for the Black women in my Truth the Ladder community, is like, when we were physically present in the office, it was tough to get like um, mentors or sponsors or like who you have to go like above and beyond 10X to prove your value, some people felt like. And that was while you were getting FaceTime. Now that we're in this virtual world, um, there's a concern that because people are not seeing people that the value that they're providing may go may get overlooked. So as you're thinking about how teams and like people, employees, can provide value to their departments or to their managers, what would you recommend they be doing like during this time? I think we have to use our virtual world for reach and scope. There are some things that we can do virtually as far as timing and reach that we might not be able to do in person. So I would say do a lot of virtual meet and greets, virtual coffees, um, do things like everything doesn't have to be 30 minutes or an hour. Say, can I just touch base for 
15 minutes, 20 minutes. I have an idea. I want to get to know you. I heard you're working on this. So really um, reach out. And then when you reach out to that one person and do that meet and greet, have them recommend at least three other people that they would have you talk to and really continue to do those meet and greets. They're not going to be in person, but they're virtual. And so people are willing to do that by phone, by video conference, by whatever. And then there are these things that we're doing at our company called digital drive-bys where certain leaders will just hold time open on their calendars to have people drop in through Zoom or WebEx or, or Teams. And so if you see that leaders are doing those office hours or digital drive-bys, use that time effectively. So use any digital means that you have in order to um, continue to meet people, continue to network continue to share what you do. So that's another thing. Sometimes I think we're so modest as black women that we don't to yourself self-advocate or self-promote or tell people what we're doing, but also use that time to throw in a couple of good things about yourself. Like I, that's great because I actually worked on this and found a lot of success or I'm working on this and I'm, you know, looking forward to that outcome. And, and really, like you said, if you're not an advocate for yourself, then who can you expect to be? And if people don't hear you talking highly about what you're doing, then how can they tell someone else about what you're doing? They're taking sound bites from what you're telling them. So I, I would say continue to use the digital world to increase your, your span and your scope of meeting people. Um, and so one of the things we'll get to like the humility and imposter syndrome in a second, because I think that that is a topic we could talk about forever. But you also mentioned as black women, um, you know, we are raised, like we are humble, right? That's just how we are socialized. But can you think of anything that you see black women doing in the workplace that could be holding them back, whether it's consciously or unconsciously, that their peers are not doing? Like, are there common mistakes that you see us making because of how we're socialized or for whatever reason? I think self-advocacy is a big one, like we said. I don't see people speaking up for themselves and challenging the status quo. Uh, challenging some of the feedback that they are getting back and challenging in a way that asking for facts and asking for then if facts, then asking for support and help. I don't see people, you know, having as much courage to ask for the sponsorship they know they deserve or to go after the positions that they know they should interview for. I know like for me, an example, like some a position had come up I felt that I was ready to interview for it. I don't know if um, someone else felt like I was ready to interview for it, but believe in yourself and trust. I mean, what do we, what do you have to, to lose if nothing else you get the experience? So sometimes I think we let other people hold us back too by other people saying, well, I don't know, you don't have this experience or whatever. Well, somebody else has 70% of the experience and they're interviewing. So I know that I'm probably at 110% of it. So I can interview. So just, I think we get it. I know I get in my own head a lot um, in that, I guess that's that imposter syndrome of I'm not ready yet. I haven't done enough. I need one more assignment. I need one more sponsor. I need one. More. It's always, I need one more of this. I need more of this before I can do that, but take that risk, take that, that jump and, and, um, what could happen? The worst thing that can happen is someone tells you no, or you need more work or need more of this. And that's a point of input, right? That's good feedback that you can build on or decide that's not right, or that's not my reality and decide to do with it what you will. I think part of it comes from the fear of putting yourself out there because there's a level of vulnerability that's required when you, and then 
having the answer be not what it is that you want. And then you see your peers who are less qualified or whatever being promoted at rates that don't make sense. So we just had a conversation about this yesterday where a friend of mine said she literally had to take her resume into her manager's office and say, hey, pull up the LinkedIn of the people who got just got promoted. Let's let's quantify it, right? And, and I think that there's just because of the power dynamics, Black people don't want to rock the boat, right? I feel like I hear this all the time where it's like there only, there's only enough room for a certain number of Black people. Um, and so people are trying to not rock the boat in an effort to like keep their jobs. But what I tell them all the time is the resentment that comes from doing that eventually is going to lead to you not doing great work and you're not going to keep the job anyway. And so you might as well um, keep receipts, have the data yourself and then have conversations that are data-driven and not emotion-driven. I think that's the advice that I give sometimes, but it's hard. It is hard. And I think you have to, to bet on yourself and you have to know that you are not tied to any one place. And that if you truly believe that you are not being treated fairly or you're not being recognized or valued, then you have to consider is there somewhere else in this organization where they will see my value and recognize me or help coach me to get to where I need to be? Or do I need to make a different decision for myself? But you have to get to a point where you are doing respectfully so what's best for you and what you know to be your reality. You can't, you don't have to just take anything. Um, and in today's times where we have all of these companies and organizations committing to increasing their diversity, uh, I would say there are some organizations that are ready with open arms or waiting with open arms to take in diverse talent that is, you know, experienced and, and good and can contribute to their organization. So I, I do think sometimes we feel like we are stuck or we have to stay where we are, um, but we don't have to do that. We have options. Um, and, and so I think that we have to believe in ourselves and bet on ourselves and do what we feel is right for for us at the end of the day. Yeah, especially if you're high performing talent, right? The the cost to rehire versus just to retain is like right. astronomical. Companies can quantify that. And so mm -hmm. if you are high performing talent, don't be like companies want to retain you and there's no point in you being miserable. Right. And you can just speak up and I know it's hard, but it does make a difference. So let's talk about imposter syndrome for a little bit. Have you experienced it? And if you have, like, what do you do to get yourself um, in a place where you can move forward, even if you are feeling it? Yeah, and I think, yes, I think there are, um, you know, there are times I feel that because again, I'm in my own head or because of all of the things that we deal with, people saying things not always to lift us up because of the resentment they might have for some of the success that we are experiencing or because they see something that we have that they might want or, or um, need. So I, I say yes, but I think what I've found myself leaning on more and more is um, a circle of friends and mentors and sponsors and black women who at the end of the day can uplift each other and kind of be my coach, my cheerleader and say, Hey, you know, Amelia, you think you can't do that, but I saw you do this, or I know you've done this, or like, go back and look at your resume. Like sometimes you just need that cheering section, right. To remind you how much you've done mm -hmm. and um, how great each and every one of us is in our own right. 
And so sometimes you just need someone else to remind you um, the, of the good things you're doing and that you are making an impact and a difference. So I think that network, that that circle of friends, that confident, those girlfriends, right? That those are the people that we need. We need to keep each other lifted up and encouraged and pumped up. Like we need to, to compliment each other and build each other up. So let's say, cause this is something that I think um, I've talked about a little bit, but if you are a first generation in the corporate world and your background doesn't necessarily is not necessarily filled with people in the corporate world and you're trying to build a network, right? It can be challenging. So what would you recommend for someone who's like, yeah, like I'm the first in my family to go to college. I'm the first in my family to be in this corporate world. Not that there's anything wrong with not like, with not being in corporate, but I'm trying to find that support system of people who understand like what I'm going through as a black woman in this space. Cause all of my, all my family knows that I make more money than anybody's ever made. Right. So when I say I'm about to leave this job, they're like, you about to leave that good job? You know, yeah. like, that stuff happens. Yeah. Right? Like, you're really gonna make yes. company. Like that is a very common. And I'm not first generation, but my parents were still, like. I remember when I was gonna leave Yahoo. My parents were like, "You leaving that good job at Yahoo? Yes. What are you doing?" Right? I can relate. So, so how do you how do you find that community if it isn't already like baked in for you? Yeah, I mean, I think if you can look at the organizations where you're at, the employee resource groups are a good source of that. At every company I've been at, the African-American network, the Black Employee Resource Group has been that community for me, just really helping me meet other people and being that support system for me, even other organizations that um, are for us, by us, right? Um, there are other organizations, whether it be um, the National MBA, Black MBA Association, and WACP, NSBE, all of those places, those organizations that exist to support each other, to provide networks for one another, to provide resources for one another. I think you can reach out to some of those organizations and start to meet people. And then also ask, if you meet one person, ask them again to introduce you to other people. I think some of the people that I'm closest to now have been referrals uh, to me by other people. And in this virtual world, I love the fact, and even the climb, like the panelists, the speakers, reaching out to them on LinkedIn and pinging them and saying, can I have 15 minutes of your time just to learn more about your journey? and to understand who else has helped you. Those are the things that the virtual world is allowing us to do to reach out to people, to meet people virtually and have these conversations and hopefully build some more relationships. Um, so we know that building strong networks and building relationships within your company like require a level of visibility into your life. And I think for a lot, not a lot, but for some people, the backgrounds that they come from may lead them to feel ashamed. And so they don't want people to get to know them. So how do you, what would you say to that person who's like, I don't want people to know the kind of family that I come back from. Like, I want them to know the person that they've met today, but having people know a part of you will probably help in building stronger networks. So like, how would you reconcile that? Yeah, I think you have to decide what your narrative is and what your story is and what pieces of that you want to share. And I think that that's what people have to get clear and um, crisp on telling is your story in your narrative. There are parts when people ask me about me and my story, there are parts of my story that I feel 
um, are more, uh, give more access to me. Um, and I share those with some, and they're parts of my story that I think give a good picture of me, but um, protect me from some, whether it be trauma or disappointment or whatnot. So I think everyone has to decide what is the narrative about you that you are comfortable letting other people know. Hmm. and um and share that like you don't have to share everything about you nobody um is entitled to any information about you 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 share with people authentically who you are based on what you're comfortable with and what you want people to know Mm -hmm. Uh, some information you might have it but they can't do anything with it so to create your own narrative especially in corporate america that's going to share enough about you allow people to connect with you and to also be beneficial to get you where you need to go some things you can share but that that's not going to help you if people in corporate america know that it's not going to help them advance your job. It might be good for gossip, but it, it's not going to help, you know, get you to where you need to go. So I think we all have to be judicious in what we um, share about people, but practice our narratives and our story and how we want to show up. I'm a marketer by training. And so I always think about like, how do I position myself in a way that is authentic to me, comfortable for me, and then going to allow someone to understand who I am. Yeah. And then the last question before the lightning round is, um, do you consider, well, it's a two-part question. (laughs) Do you consider yourself an ambitious woman? Ambitious? Mm -hmm. I think so. Okay. So how do you reconcile all of the things that come with being ambitious and taking care of yourself? I think one of the the things that we talk about a ton is self-care, right? Like, I know I want to do all these things at work and I want to climb the ladder and I want to do all this stuff. But then I keep hearing like, you should get eight hours of sleep. Like all that, <laughs> right. all that mumbo jumbo that, you know, people that the, the fads of the moment of like, I go to the spa. I, and it's like, but I got 16 hours of work that I want right. to be CEO by the time I'm whatever. Yeah. How have you looked at that? Like making sure you don't get lost in all of this that's happening within your career. I think, um, I can't say I've always done a great job of it. And I can say I can do better with that. But I remember um, working with a coach and the coach taking the approach of like, I want to coach you from a holistic standpoint. And I was like, this is about work. And she's like, no, it's holistic. Let's talk about your holistic priorities. Because once we talk about your professional and personal life, then you can start to prioritize and know what has to give. And that was very um, profound for me and eye-opening because I had compartmentalized the two. So I put all of this, all the stuff I have to do in order to be successful at work and all this stuff that I have to do to be successful in my personal life. And what I found is like one bucket was always overpowering the other. And But when you integrate them, It's a little bit, I don't call it balance. It's an integration of what your priorities are. So once I got my top three priorities, like if your top priority is health, like if I can't, I can't do anything unless I'm healthy, then that starts to uh, feed into the other things in your professional and personal life. And so that's how I've done it. I've said, there are things that are very important to me and this is the priority level that I have. And so I have to adjust my time accordingly. That doesn't mean that my number five on the list won't sometimes be my one and my number one on the list might not, you know, unfortunately fall to my number five, but that does mean I have perspective and know when I'm out of balance with the priorities that I've set for myself. So the one 
be of that. So how do you then think about the concept of grace, like giving yourself grace when the prior, like when one bucket just seems to be like dominating for an extended period of time. And you, cause I think the guilt that comes with that, right? Like sometimes like for the moms that I know, it's like, am I being a good mom? Am I being a good wife? Am I being a good employee? I, like, how do you think about grace as it pertains to the integration of life and work? Yeah, I think I call things a season on a long journey. It's not the end all be all. So I know like there'll be times in my life where I am, um, you know, that are more about career and there are times that will be more about family and there are times where I'm going to be fighting to find both. But I think what I've, I've said from a grace standpoint is that it's a journey and I'm learning on this journey and I'm going to make mistakes, but as long as I'm okay, like things are aligning with my values and I'm okay with it, then I'm fine. If my values are out of whack or something is not aligning with my values and what I say I'm about, then that's when I need to reassess what I'm doing. And so that's the grace that I give myself to actually take the time to reassess and say, based on the values and, and my overall objective for life, am I aligning with those at that point? And if I'm not, then I need to reset. Mm. Okay, so next up, we're gonna do lightning round questions. Don't think too much about it, <laughs> it comes to mind. Um, what's one piece of career advice you wish you had gotten earlier in your career? I think I wish I would have gotten the advice to, uh, be able to position points of view that are different from the status quo and to really practice how to do that. Mm. Um, I think there's, again, there's some positioning on how you put forth things that might be innovative or different. And I wish I would have spent more time on that because sometimes I'm so direct and transparent, like throwing things out there that people aren't ready for um, is not you don't always get the best response. So I wish um, people have said like, you can you can always do that, but there's a way that you do it. I wish I would have gotten that advice a lot earlier on in my career. Um, what's the career lesson that took you the longest to learn, um, but has, got, has made the biggest impact on your career? Um, I think it's like, you don't always have to be in love with what you do, but you always have to be learning from what you do and be contributing to what you do. I think some of us get so caught up in, but oh, is this giving me energy? Am I loving it? I'm not saying don't do something that you don't, that doesn't give you energy or what you don't love, but sometimes you have to do things because they're a moment of growth um, and introspection and learning. And so I think that's what I've, I've learned that um, sometimes things the path that I thought I should travel is not the path that I was meant to be on. And I have to be open to that. Hmm. What's one book that you could read over and over again? Uh, the Memo by Minda Hartz. We had the opportunity so to have Minda come and speak at Best Buy last year during Black History Month. And when I read the book, I just said like, this is my story. Like, this is me. I can relate. I can empathize. Like, oh my gosh, there are other people, uh, other black women. Like, yes, she's articulated what I wanted to write forever. Mm -hmm. Like I could have written that book <laughs> and she's so relatable and down to earth and telling her story that I could read it over and over again. I've used so many examples when trying to explain my own experiences from her book. 
And then the last question is, we all know that decisions about your career are going to be made when you are not in the room. So what do you hope people are saying about you when you're not in the room? I hope they're saying that I'm a kind and conscientious leader who puts people first, who wants the best for um, the people I work for, for my colleagues, for the company, and that what I say I will do, I will do, and I will do it with the utmost respect and honor for others and myself. And on that note, thank you so much, Amelia, for being with us today. If people want to connect with you, where can they reach you? You can always reach me on LinkedIn um, and I will respond. I'll get back to you. Man, I feel so fortunate to have Black women like Amelia as part of my professional network, to know that there are women like her who are um, paving the way and making sure that the next generation of Black female leaders um, have access to resources and information um, that can make the difference in our careers means so much to me. But as you know, I like to end each episode with my three gems that I picked up from the conversation. And one is the importance of value alignment. If you did the five-day career challenge, you know that one of the days we spend looking at our mission and our values and making sure that our career mission aligns with our personal values. And so if you have not done that work, you need to make sure that you are clear on your values and that you are doing work that aligns with your values as opposed to betraying your values. The second thing is um, knowing when you are uh, in a job that sometimes you may not always feel passionate about it, but there are always opportunities for growth, right? So looking at your season of your career um, to figure out where you can grow um, doesn't always translate to, I'm going to be passionate about this. I think there is a, a push to always be living in passion and always be passionate about the work that we're doing. But sometimes you have to recognize that you are in a growth season. Um, and then the last thing, and this one was an ouch moment for me, is uh, positioning your um, the statements that you make. I am someone who's very direct. And as I've gotten more senior, I've started to think more strategically and intentionally about how to position new information, innovative addition, uh, innovative um information in ways that the people who need to be able to connect with it can understand. So being intentional about how we position the things that we say and how we position the information that we share. Um, as always, if you want to keep the conversation going, you can connect with us on Instagram at I Choose the Ladder or on Facebook at I Choose the Ladder or through our newsletter by texting CLIMB, C-L-I-M-B, to 66866. Again, that's CLIMB, C-L-I-M-B, to 66866. And until next time, thank you for listening.